0: And welcome to Hard Labor and Money Splashes, a Rolling Stones podcast. We're Craig and John, we're your hosts. The first single is the title track, Undercover of the Night. Uh sometimes just billed as undercover. Ronnie claims that there is a version of this
1: that's just acoustic guitar and drums. Yeah. Which I've never seen, I've never heard. If anyone
0: knows about this or has it, let's let's bring it out. I think you can hear this I, I've heard some different mixes of this on YouTube. They're not great, but you know, they're bootlegs or whatever. Not that I condone bootlegging, but it's out there. I don't know if I've heard that particular version. I've also heard other people make reference to that. I think, um, I want to say it was Jack White who said that that the White Stripes used to do an acoustic version of wow. that. And they probably cribbed that from that idea. The song is, Mick has said later, largely, he said he didn't steal it, but it's largely influenced by William Burroughs. Well, so some of his imagery comes from... Uh
1: Cities of the Red Knight. But, I mean, this song has a lot less to do with Burroughs than, say, Sympathy with the Devil had to do with The Master and Margarita. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, what makes this, uh, number one, is one of the all-time great protest songs ever that anyone has ever done, uh, which is strange in 1983. It was lost in American audiences,
0: I think. Well, because they didn't know. right well, I mean, you're, you're coming <laughs> off of, like, you know, you're coming off of this run of these very popular... Dancey types, and this is a da- this is a rock song that's- Mikas is very danceable, but you're coming off their last few hits are things like Miss You, uh, Emotional Rescue, Start Me Up, Hang Fire maybe, uh, like party songs, songs you'd be playing at a summer barbecue or something. This is a rock and roll song, it's not necessarily a feel-good, fun party song. Well, to me this
1: is- This is the difference between the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, we're a long, it's a long way from Please Please Me, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Oh Darling, you know, Lady Madonna, all this stuff, to, you know, hear the screams in Center 42 loud enough to bust your brains out. This is, strangely though, not a quantum leap from Painted Black. So this idea that the Stones always have this darker song, these songs about sex and death, uh, and if you're some sort of asexual Beatles person, this, you know, that might not be your thing but but if you live in the real world suddenly like wait a minute this is amazing it's a strange thing but without going cuz this would be a podcast into itself but if you if you google up uh, operation condor and the iran contra affair uh that will tell you what's going on in this and it would be 4 years before the american people have congressional hearings on this and start to actually find out you know what's been happening uh it would be another you know years before sting would write his song uh, They Dance Alone and strangely for for all their excess and seediness you know it's the world's greatest rock and roll band that's calling this out (laughs) it becomes a time that's so utterly bank, morally bankrupt that something like this is happening and we don't even know and here's this band who's like we're going to tell you all about it and make a video just as so you do know. You know, the Stones have made political music, but always, and people always seem mystified, like, well, this is strange for them to suddenly be interested in, in South and Central American politics. Although, again, you know, Mick has done a lot. Yeah, and <laughs>
0: I think this particular... I mean, he's called out later, like, well, this, this was a political song. They don't normally do very well. I think Street Fighting Man was maybe one of the first where... I mean, they'd done things like that before Street Fighting Man. That one, I think, was a meant to be a lead single didn't place very high at the time for various reasons. I found in Musician magazine, uh I don't have the exact date here, but uh it comes out around right around the time the album's released. There's a there's an article, there's an interview with Mick and Keith. They're talking about what single to put out first. And they're debating whether to put out Undercover the Night or She Was Hot. Keith did not want to be involved in the song. Ron Wood has said that we mentioned that earlier like Keith Ron Wood was involved in the song a lot because Keith didn't like it, wouldn't get involved. But
1: but that's okay, because Keith steals the video.
0: Yeah, this contradicts that a bit. And, you know, there's different sources for things. You can say something today and maybe change your mind tomorrow. We all do it. But according to Keith in this, he says, um, we wanted to put out Undercover of the Night as the first single. Atlantic isn't going for it. He says that there's a debate about the versions. And Mick probably, he's telling the interviewer, he's like, Mick probably played you the straight version of Undercover, which does not suffice. And so the interviewer says that Keith Richards gets up and he goes to the radio and he plays a remixed dub version that I want to put out. He describes it as, Richards goes into a rubbery dance as a blast of reverb drenched... Well, try to imagine standing in a massive tunnel while an express train driven by Sly and Robbie with the Rolling Stones strapped to the engine comes barreling towards your ass at 150 miles an hour. It's like, no wonder Atlantic (laughs) balked. So... Keith says in this interview, the, the hotter mix is the one I want to substitute for the one that Mick played. And he says, you know, Mick, by, by and large, is a conservative guy. He's trying to work on that. Here's Keith saying, I'm, I want to get more creative. I'm, I'm less inclined to go for a typical verse-chorus-verse-chorus verse, chorus approach. I don't mind a five-minute intro. I don't mind knocking out a verse. I don't mind knocking out some vo- vocals. You know, why Why be conservative? So here's, you know, back to what we're saying. Mick's saying, I, I want to take these chances and do this. There's this legend Keith is saying, no, I don't want to do that. This kind of contradicts that. He, in a way, he's saying it's not, his beef is that it's not experimental enough, of the final mix. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, and it's not necessarily an experimental song in the structure or anything. Like, it's it's got a really good riff. It's got a really good drum beat. Uh, I think what he may have objected to... Or at least seems like that would have been the case is the mix, <laughs> <laughs> but his mix sounds even crazier. Uh, that you know, this is I don't I, I've, I've never heard hear that mix. I've never heard that mix. I mean I don't know if there's a way to definitively hear like what mix he had in mind there, but. There's also a version uh, with Wyman on bass somewhere, again, that I've never heard. There's a lot of different bootlegs out there. I've, I mean, I've heard some official remake like the 12-inch remix and stuff like that, but I've never heard the, the definitive, like, oh, this is the one Keith was talking about that he played that day. So what we're talking about
1: with that is, is all, all over this album, Reggae Titans, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare, uh, they brought in to bring uh, some extra flavor to an already spicy album so how how does undercover do when they put it out as a single it
0: reaches number nine in the states which is a you know it's a top 10 hit i looked up some other stats internationally i think the highest i found was maybe in the netherlands it gets to number four or something so it's a top five but in many places a, a top 10 to a top 20 hit this is something I think is totally unfair, and we'll, you'll hear us talk about this a lot
1: in different points in history. The idea of the Rolling Stones having a, quote, a slump, and then they suddenly come back. If you're going up against Thriller, uh, Michael Jackson, his most powerful album ever, and you have a top ten single, I don't call that a slump. Lots of people never make it
0: that far. And I wonder, too, how much of that is American critics at the time. Uh, because I don't know that this supposed slump if it did happen, is happening, if anything, I think their stock is rising in other countries at this time. Sure. I mean, and it continues to do so, you know, from this point forward, all these markets that never had access to them from the 60s and 70s and early 80s start getting access to them. And we'll find out here that this album in particular, especially in Central and South America, really goes over because this message resonates uh, and starts a whole movement based on this. Uh, there's, you know, in some places you couldn't listen to rock and roll. I mean, you couldn't hear it at one point, but like you literally could be put in jail or something in some of these countries. And it's, it's... Around the world. Yeah, and the reach starts to go there. The other thing you could say is, is that really evocative of how good a song is? I mean, this is an age-old argument, you know. I mean, there's a lot of top 10 and number one hits that in the one-hit wonder bin today. And some of their greatest songs probably weren't released you know I mean, some of the songs that are classic rolling stone songs were never chart hits because they weren't released as singles. this is a really
1: great point um but uh, the, the chart position if you're claiming there's a slump the, the numbers never support that ever in the whole history of the group to this very day if you're talking about a creative thing this is the rolling stones at the apex of their power up to this point in their history this is so much great stuff is happening in this one album, and they'll get better. Yeah. <laughs> but by the time they put out a bigger bang, that's my second favorite album. You know, the, the treats are good, are coming. You know, there's there's still more treats around the corner. So the song itself is a political political corruption, violence references are very specific, a, ideological genocide happening. Yeah. You know, south of our borders, and sponsored by a lot of people you might think are good people. And you know, again, save that for Google. Wrapped up in a
0: really good. Keith uh, riff that may or may not be Keith's. Let's let's. He's gonna, you know in the video it certainly looks like his. I think it's probably a Mick riff with some 80's style production to it. You could see uh, the the timpani drum plays a big part in the in the mix. There's there's a great beat by Charlie, but there's also some drum machine put on. There's a lot of layers put onto this. Uh, and you'd mentioned this earlier, but Ron Wood has said there's a, an acoustic version of this that he thinks is the, the version. He's like I I, I know that Mick's. Version of the song was the final glossed-up version that everybody hears. But in his notes, he said uh, that himself and Charlie and Mick worked on these great acoustic versions and percussion-based versions that were, in his in his mind, much much better. It's like if Hollis Brown
1: were done by voodoo shamans, uh, you'd have this ultimate protest song.
0: So it's the leadoff single. I also uh, one more thing I want to say is I think the hook. I don't know if you tell the chorus, but there's the. The hook underneath it that I I always thought was underrated. I think it was it leaned on maybe like a Miss You type uh, chorus a little bit. I always thought that was a little underrated.
1: And after only one day on sale, Undercover as it's called, has already gone gold. That's 100,000 copies sold. Proving to the cynics that even though he's in the wrong side of 40, lead singer Mick Jagger is still on the top.
0: It charts, I think, by, you know, the second single is going to come out pretty early on in 1980. It starts strong, it's, you could say, a top 10 hit, a top 5 in some places. It doesn't necessarily have a lot of legs as a top 100 or mm-hmm. a top 40 song. The video, as you mentioned, was, uh, they hired Julian Temple to do the video. I don't know if we wanted to cover videos specifically in one section, or... Uh, uh, what, probably what we need to mention is, uh, with all everything going on
1: in the world, somehow people find reasons to be like oh the rolling stones that's too extreme that's too naughty that's too something so this video is banned yeah all oh, right is it
0: um the bbc i think banned it the bbc
1: or- banned it uh this is mtv
0: i think they banned a re-edit. maybe or they they did the thing where they could air it after like 10 p.m. or something mm-hmm. which seems silly now because to see the video it's not necessarily that graphic and there are two versions Yes. Okay, now the version that I always remember, footage of the Stones playing in a club, miming to the song. There's a pair of what I would guess would be high school kids on a couch. And they're watching the real video. There's a young man and a woman. The guy wants to like make out with this girl on the couch or something. He keeps turning the TV back to the Stones playing in a club. She keeps... She doesn't... She's like rolling her eyes at him, and, and when he's not looking, she'll turn the video back to another video which is a reenactment of what's happening kind of in the song, where Mick Jagger plays some sort of political fixer. Uh, Some some sort of character who's on the wrong side of uh, someone. Uh, A young lady who, if I remember right, I think I looked this up, who later starred in Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think it's the same actress. So she plays, it's set in Central America. Uh, She has to go to Mick Jagger's character. Mick, Mick plays two characters, if I remember this right. He's some sort of political activist who's locked up. Then he plays another guy who she hires to try to rescue him. There's a lot of Keith Richards with a skull mask who's... Was he, like, in a priest outfit or something? He's sort of running, like, a
1: a death squad and Mm -hmm. uh, abducting one of the the Micks.
0: Mick, the fixer, as it were, uh, gets shot by Keith toward the end and dies. I think there's a scene where maybe there's, like, a political assassination. But, again, not... It's not like Scarface or anything. Like, someone's not getting chainsawed. Like, there's there's violence. It's to not sure. too much blood. There's violence, to be sure, but it's... Now we would say this was banned. Banned for well, political content. Okay, but again,
1: to give you an idea of how
0: conservative 1983 was, 1984.
1: So we saw Eurythmics had one of the top ten songs. Uh, and when they came over to be the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, Annie Lennox was stopped by customs and would not was not let into America until she could, quote prove that she was a woman. Uh. Because somehow the idea that perhaps if she was a, a, a lad dressed up, like, like a boy dressed as a woman in male drag... It's too much to... It's mind-bending. <laughs> it's a this minding... It's
0: bending the mind thinking about it. Uh,
1: but that, like, somehow... if And if she were to come and sing on television in, in this state, that it would somehow do something irreparable harm to, to the American people or the youth of America. And, um, I mean, we've, we've got so so much... Space to go uh, with rights and freedom, but back then, like you know, you couldn't come even come in. This was considered too outrageous. A- Any Lennox with short hair was, was a danger to. America. <laughs> it was going to shut the country down. So yeah, so sure, like they're they're threatened by the stone.
0: Why on earth did you choose to
1: put such scenes of explicit violence into what? After it's just a promo promo for your new single. I mean, why?
0: It's a uh, it's a film which goes with our new single, which is about. Uh, the video follows a song. Uh, it's about uh, political repression, it's about violence. I noticed you, you oh, we all got your reactions <laughs> when the violent bits come, we never actually saw it. You were just going, kind of shaking your head. You know, I mean, we're not, we're not trying to dress it up and uh, trying to sell the record with, uh, you know, advertising cliches. We wanted to make something that that was about the song. The significance kind of, we've talked about overall, but in The Stones' overall canon of songs, this one quickly, I think every greatest hit's Compilation they put out since has included this particular song. I mean, I think most of the time those go, those are a mix of like chart hits and fan favorites, but this is held in high, re- I mean, it's it's always included in a greatest hit, starting with Rewind and to this present day, the most recent one. There's also many interview things I've seen later on with Keith, eh, not always disparaging it, but saying, you know, uh, I think it was Guitar Player Magazine, I found a quote from him and they were talking about maybe the 40 Licks set or something and he's like yeah i don't i don't know exactly what'll be on there i doubt undercover of the night let's put it that way we'll make it uh. he, he's when cds when they started to do cd releases re-releases they asked him about that and he was saying you know some of the ones i thought would sound good like undercover and emotional rescue sound a little thin you know, this 80s production or something so he's not necessarily a fan of it but so this is 1983 they do the next time they tour is 89 steel wheels And it is included on the tour. I don't know if there was some sort of push and pull about what to include. If they have a, you know, we've learned later they have lists and Mick has to usually, and Chuck Lavelle and whoever have to sit down and do this. But it's played pretty heavily on that tour. And you may have seen
1: uh, other sources have claimed, well, it was never ever played live, which is not actually true.
0: They, early on in Voodoo Lounge tour of 1994, they were playing it. I think they dropped it pretty early on. Um, It comes back, the tour we saw, 2002, 40 Licks, they played it and it made some appearances. And I think it's an outtake in the Martin Scorsese. Nice. Uh, in the shine of light. I don't think it's, I don't think it's in the actual finish, but I think like on the deleted scenes or something, they, they do a version. So to the band themselves, I, I don't know how much they, other than Mick, give it too much credit. Although in the According to the Rolling Stones book that came out in the, I think, early 2000s, Ron Wood always had a lot of nice things to say about it. And it, it's definitely got significance as we're going to talk about later, this and the album. But if, if, if nothing else, it, it always
1: says it's one of their most badass songs
0: that's probably a way to say i mean we have given it a very uh, intellectual spin here <laughs> but i mean you could just put this on it's kind of like uh, some other things like to me it's it's comparable in a way to like can't you hear me knocking and i'm not saying it's as good a song but i'm saying that intro if you know that's coming up just turn your speakers up <laughs> yes you know what i mean and just let that intro blast through and and let that riff kind of carry through and if you're finding a political meaning and enjoying the lyrics fine but to your point it, it's a great just rock and roll song all <laughs> the other. So. And a great lead off to the album. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Hard Labor and Money Splashes, the podcast dedicated to the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Email us at hardlabormoneysplashes at gmail.com.